writing about this too in the book, there's a couple of things that make critical problems critical. And we found that in feedback creation. So yeah. that was our validation. We looked at what her life was, validated that, and then we looked into the community because we were part of Facebook groups, we were part of forum groups where all these teachers would hang out and communicate and see, well, is this actually something occurring with others or are yes. we the outlier? And yeah. we saw people building the craziest contraptions in Microsoft Excel and in Google Docs okay. just to deal with this. And if there's anything that says, this is a problem. It is when people start abusing Excel and Google Docs to solve their problems. It's like when people start emailing back, back and forth like spreadsheets for their job, you know okay. that there's a SaaS business somewhere in there because yeah. this is something that could be solved by custom logic, right? That's mm. always what I feel. If people start emailing back and forth, this is something that could be encapsulated in a business, in a, in a product. And if people use Google Docs in a way that it shouldn't be used, or Google uh, Google Sheets in particular, where you would usually do math, but they just keep it so they have some sort of insight into like the order of things and to be able to copy and paste quickly. This is yeah. also custom logic waiting to happen. So that was our validation. Hi, just a quick request. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please take a minute to write a review and leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts because it helps us climb the charts and reach more listeners like yourself. I was just reading your book yesterday and so many interesting stuff. But for the beginning, just for those of us who don't know you, tell us who you are. Okay, well, my name's Arvid, Arvid Karl. I'm a, I used to be an engineer. That's one of these hard things to shake. Like I always think of myself as a software engineer first, but I'm actually a writer now and I'm an entrepreneur and a software engineer engineer, and like uh, and many, many different things. But I, I used to have a career in software engineering, started in 2000, 2003, around that time. Worked for lots of companies in, in Silicon Valley, here in Germany, for software businesses, big and small, and had my own consulting going on. And lots of little projects, lots of bootstrap companies that I try to found and get uh, turned into successful businesses and failed horribly. And then over time, I learned enough, both skill-wise and from an entrepreneurial perspective, to actually have a successful business at some point. And that was Feedback Panda. I've co-founded that with my girlfriend and business partner, Danielle, in, back in 2017. We built a company as a SaaS business for online English teachers, um, pretty much a time optimization tool and like uh, something for, for them to make their workday go by faster, their, their work more efficient. We've, yeah, we founded in 2017. We grew the business to $55,000 monthly recurring revenue by the uh, mid-2019, two years later. And then we sold it to a private equity company for a life-changing amount of money. That's as much as I can say. <laughs> and ever since then, I've been thinking and writing about my experiences in Feedback Panda, through Feedback Panda and the time before with all the businesses that didn't work out. And yeah. the most recent thing I've been doing is, yeah, I, I self-published a book, Zero to Sold, which kind of goes through the whole journey of these businesses and just explains everything I know from the beginning of even thinking of maybe wanting to start a business to actually building it and then selling it, because that's the book that I would have loved to read two years yeah. ago when I started the business. So that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to write the book that I would have loved to read back then. And that's, yeah, that's where I ended up pretty much. Yeah, and taking a step back, so you started uh, learning to code while you were in school mm. and then you went to college uh, pursuing a CS degree. You dropped out of that and then you started studying political science and so uh, is what- yeah, dropped out of that. Yeah, dropped out of that too. Yeah. But in one of your interviews, you said something very interesting. You said that since you studied politics and philosophy, you had this idea of complex human behaviors and that helped you while you were building this company. Could you explain that a little bit more? There's there's a lot of theories in, in the social sciences that con concern how people interact and also just the, the, the basic philosophical pillars of logic. You know, like um, we, we all approach life in a highly pragmatic way, particularly if you're an engineer, you always look at things and you say, oh, yeah, that's a product. I could build something and I could make this happen. I could solve this problem. But you don't really consider like these deep underlying implications. So uh, you, you just act kind of because that's your trade, right? You've been trained to do a thing. 
It's yes. like if you're a plumber, you see a pipe, you want to like mess with it. You want to make it better. You want to fix it, right? It's the same for software engineers or for people from an engineering background. We see a problem, we want to solve it. But what I found in my, my education in philosophy and in political science and social sciences in particular is that there's these big bird's eye perspectives that you can take on small things and see them contextualized in the world around them. And wow. I feel that is something that you don't get taught in, in the CS university environment. Yes. I remember going to university. That was the first university I went to, just diving right into computer science. And we learned math, discrete math, very interesting stuff like proofs. And then you went into programming where they taught us Java for some reason. And yeah. then technical stuff like just building physical components. But there never really was a part of this kind of study that looked into, okay, so how do you ethically apply this right mm. how do you do this yes. to better humanity how what can you do to actually help people with your craft it was really and uh, something where people taught you what to do and maybe how to do it but not the why, why? and the why is, is is always very interesting and I, I can give you an example of where social studies have really helped me understand in business in particular mm. to to recontextualize something there's a social scientist called niklas luhmann Okay. German, probably not a big surprise from that name. And he has been doing theory, like working on theories and theories particularly about what is truth and how can you call something true or how can you validate something? And validation yes. is a big thing in entrepreneurial life, right? We yeah. talk about validating ideas, validating markets, validating audiences, validating products. So to me, the, the term validation doesn't just have this meaning talking to people and they tell me, yeah, it's great. That's not the same thing because Niklas Luhmann says that you can never really verify a theory. You can only... Yeah, kind of um, do the opposite and say that's a, that a theory is, is wrong because you only okay. need one counterexample to prove that a theory is wrong, but you can mm. give example after example after example to say a theory is right. There still could be a counterexample out there. That's right. pretty much his theory in layman's terms, right? You just need one counterexample to disprove a theory, but you need infinite examples to prove one. So things cannot be proven right. They can only be proven wrong. And oh. if you look, look at validation and verification of your product that way, then your whole approach changes. You don't talk to people and you try to figure out, oh, do you like it? Well, did, and, and hope for a yes, right? You don't want a yes. You don't need the yes. The yes doesn't help you. What you yeah. need is the no. You need to figure out why wouldn't you like it? Right? What mm. in this is actually a problem that I could make better so that I will not hear the no anymore? So this kind of stuff helps me in, in just approaching certain things in, in the technical business world just from a slightly different angle. And that often makes a big difference in just really the, the interaction with people. Right. And if you could explain what Feedback Panda was as a product, and then you could take us through how you were framing your questions when you were validating the idea for Feedback Panda. Right. So Feedback Panda was a, a pretty much a, a SaaS um, browser-based software as a service product. So our customers were online English teachers and online English teachers, particularly now, I guess in, in COVID times, there's lots more of them, but there already were quite a few back then in 2017, because in China, for, for some reason, the infrastructure was now so well established, established the internet infrastructure that you could teach people over the internet in rural and remote areas of China okay. and in the big cities as well. But mm. that means that for Chinese companies, and that was interesting to build big software platforms to teach children English because you want to have access to the, the world yes. market. You need to speak English, at least if you want to get out of China. Right. Yes. And for, for that, they hired native um, English speakers, Americans and, and British people, South Africans, everybody who kind of speaks English natively and just really connected them to kids in China who spoke no English at all and then gave them a curriculum. And then the, the people would have to teach like through Skype, essentially, for like half an hour. Um, okay. English, a certain kind of PowerPoint presentation was there and they would have to engage the kid and get them to speak and correct them, you know, in English lessons pretty much. And 
they would do this through a browser-based video system, like Zoom in a browser or Skype okay. in a browser. And it would do these half-hour lessons or 25-minute lessons and then have a five-minute break and then do another 25-minute lesson, five-minute break, and so on. Often these teachers would teach up to 10 hours a day, which is 20 lessons. So mm. the problem was teaching was a lot of fun and teachers love teaching. You know, teachers, they yeah. are super engaged and they are singing and dancing in front of their computer. That is enjoyable. What is not enjoyable is writing feedback for the parents of the kid to read because the parents, Chinese parents, they really want to know how well the kid is doing yes. and you need to write something meaningful for them, but you can't really write anything meaningful about a 25 minute lesson in, in five minutes that incorporates what you did, what the kid could do to become better, what was not so good, what was great. This takes time. And if you don't do this within those five minutes, which you may also want to use for like a bathroom break or getting some coffee or tea, you have to do this after you've done teaching. And yeah. if you teach for 10 hours and you have to have to write feedback for another two hours, that's a long day. So that's where we kind of integrated our software product into this process. And we allowed them to write templates for the student feedback so they could just easily pull in all this, what we did today. They also, they always taught the same lessons. So you don't okay. need to write this stuff over and over again. You can yeah. write it once. And then just add the name of the student and the particulars, what they did well and what they didn't do so well. And that would be like a 10 second, 20 second thing instead of a 10 minute kind of situation. Nice. So we condensed two hours of extra works into five to 10 minutes of work that people could like do interspersed between the actual lessons. And we charged 10 bucks a month in the beginning and $15 after a year. We increased our prices by 50%. That worked. Yeah. And we, we offered a browser extension to integrate into people's classrooms. And we could go into technical details, but it really doesn't matter. We allowed them to easily and within their workflow get uh, their student feedback done quickly. So when we did validation, there's two, two kinds of validation. There's always the initial validation where you, where you have multiple steps, right? I've, and that's what I also write about in the book. Like I'm, I'm at least considering every business to be the most successful if you validate every step along the way. And to me, that okay. starts with an audience. You want to figure out, is there actually a group of people that would buy stuff from me? That, that it has a budget that is big enough that I would like to help that themselves have interesting problems. Then you validate that. Then you look into their problems. Do they have problems that I can solve for them? Which ones are the critical ones? Then you figure out, are they really critical or do I just think so, right? You, you talk to them and you engage with people. You go into communities. You figure out what do people complain about a lot. You, you read up on, you look into other SaaS businesses in the market, figure out what are they solving? Is there a common theme or is something left out completely what they didn't even think about because there hasn't been a transfer of knowledge into this particular yeah industry yet you validate that but also by talking to people i'll get to that then yeah. you build this and then, then you envision a solution you don't build one just yet you just think mm. of how can i solve this problem and try to figure out does this even fit into the workflow that these people have right because in our case those teachers they would open the browser they would teach and then they would kind of stay in the browser and teach the next lesson so building something like a mobile app where they would have to be pulled out of the browser environment, okay. fill in something, and then go back into the browser, that would disrupt their workflow. So mm. that might not be a good idea. So we needed something to, that actually fit the workflow and would help them without creating even more work, right? Wow, so yeah. what, once you have that done and validate this by just really checking with people how their workflow works and how, how they go step by step, then you come to the product and then your big idea can happen, right? Then you can say, okay, I'm going to build a mobile app or I'm going to build a SaaS or I'm just going to build some sort of platform product, marketplace, whatever. That's yep. the last part, surprisingly. Many people start with that and I feel it's much easier to validate a group of people you want to help, the thing you want to help them with, how you want to help them and in what format you want to help them than to mm. say, here's what I did. I hope somebody has this as a problem and I hope that they actually are willing to pay, right? Yeah. There's very little validation involved by just building a thing and then throwing it into a market. If you do this the other way around, if you start with the market, the audience. Audience and then first, yeah. Audience first, essentially. Then you go into the, where's the problem? And then you zoom into that and then you add, then you offer your solution and then you know, at least, okay, this solution is solving a validated problem for a validated group of people. So I will be able to sell this if I actually do any marketing. You still have to do marketing, right? But, yeah. you know, 
that that and that is the initial validation. I, I feel that is the the part that we did before we launched the business, and we were lucky in a sense that Danielle, my partner, was also an English teacher, and she had this problem. So by yeah, in, in that way, we knew that an audience existed because she was part of it. And yeah. at that point, I think there was around seven thousand online English teachers for this one particular school teaching for okay. the school that she taught for in China, which was the biggest one at this point. But we saw, okay, here's a competitor for, for this kind of online school coming up in the next week. Okay. There's two more competitors coming up. Okay. This yeah, it's a growing like a, market, an expanding market, maybe an exploding market. If you look at the, yeah. the ad tech in China charts, it's, it's a really interesting exponential growth um, in the market itself. So there were 7,000 teachers then, when we launched, there was, I think, 10,000 teachers, which is a oh, roughly 30-something percent growth in just a month or two while we built our prototype, right? So we knew that the market was there. We just had to figure out, is this a critical problem? And we, we also did that by looking into Danielle's actual day-by-day -day work, right? She she had a lot of stuff to complain about. Like online English teaching is hard work and to be physically active and singing and dancing for 10 hours straight in front of a computer without yeah. any real physical feedback, it's weird. It's just strange for the human mind. It's like like right now in this conversation, I'm, I'm not looking at your face in, in Skype. I'm looking into the camera so yes. that you think I'm looking at you, which is weird to me because I would rather look into your face to see your reaction, right? It's, it's all this kind of stuff, which is so strange. So there's always these little problems in online and remote teaching and remote work that you may not think of as a big problem, but they are there. So you just have to figure out, are they big problems or are they not? And we figured out, well, singing and dancing is kind of hard, but it's not the critical problem. It, it's not the thing that makes you go, oh, I hate this. It's just, ah, oh, this is slightly inconvenient. So we looked at what do people talk about that they really, really can't deal with. And feedback was the biggest thing of all. They, they, they had problems because, I mean, they weren't paid enough. That's always a problem, right? But that's not something that yeah. we could solve. That is an industry internal problem. But feedback was a thing because not only did they have to do it within those five minutes or after, they had to do it to get paid. So they had to write this feedback after their workday was over on unpaid time so they would even get paid for the 10 hours they did okay. before in teaching. So we understood, okay, this is like what a critical problem actually is. You cannot defer it. It's your problem. You cannot pay somebody to solve it for you. It's always painful. It's really frequent. It happens every single day, multiple times. Yeah. And it, it's always, it costs you something if you were to just ignore it, right? And, and I've been writing about this too in the book. There's a couple of things that make critical problems critical. And we found that in feedback creation. So yeah. that was our validation. We looked at what her life was, validated that. And then we looked into the community because we were part of Facebook groups. We were part of forum groups where all these teachers would hang out and communicate and see, well, is this actually something occurring with others or are yes. we the outlier? And yeah. we saw people building the craziest contraptions in Microsoft Excel and in Google Docs okay. just to deal with this. And if there's anything that says, this is a problem. It is when people start abusing Excel and Google Docs to solve their problems. It's like when people start emailing back, back and forth like spreadsheets for their job, you know okay. that there's a SaaS business somewhere in there because yeah. this is something that could be solved by custom logic, right? That's mm. always what I feel. If people start emailing back and forth, this is something that could be encapsulated in a business, in a, in a product. And if people use Google Docs in a way that it shouldn't be used, or Google uh, Google Sheets in particular, where you would usually do math, but they just keep it so they have some sort of insight into like the order of things and to be able to copy and paste quickly. This yeah. is also custom logic waiting to happen. So that was our validation. Later, during the business, a, a year in or two, we had a couple interviews with people every now and then if we uh, wanted to release a particular intense new feature, we would call them up after having given them a couple weeks time to, with, with the prototype, just throwing it out there, giving them an installation instruction. We, we did this because we needed to have people actually install the piece of software to integrate with one of their classrooms okay. and then just let them teach with it. And then we called them up and just tell us what didn't work. Tell us what you didn't like. And this is what we're interested in. What did work for you? It's pretty much what we did because again, what you like 
what does it matter, right? What is what right. what, is, what can we learn from what things people like? We need to know what doesn't work for them. We need to know what doesn't fit into their workflow, where they struggled with con the conceptual, the system that we presented to them, where the the UI didn't make sense, where the I don't know the knowledge base kept them ill informed. All these kind of things. Um, we asked them and they gave us great feedback. We selected them. We hand selected those people from the ones that were, I would say, the most active in the community because we mm -hmm. kept a close look on our community because we found that for particularly from the first couple of users we got, a lot of them turned into very loud evangelists for a product because, wow. you know. We had a lot of interaction with them. We had intercom installed in our product. So when people had a question, I would make it my personal mission to respond within 10 seconds or less, it's just wow. to make them feel there's immediacy. It kind of created a lot of stress for me because if you always you go through your whole day wanting to respond to everything within 10 seconds, you have to drop whatever you're doing. And I don't think yeah. it's it's healthy, but the idea of quickly, at least like somewhat quickly responding to people and then building a connection, building a relationship with your customers, turned those people who came with a problem, right? They came and said, this hasn't right. worked. And I said, I'm on it. And they said, what? You're already on it? And then 30 <laughs> minutes later, I just pushed something to production solving your problem. And then I, I didn't see them, but I would assume like a jaw was dropping somewhere um, in, in the United yeah. States where most of our customers live. You, you fixed this within 30 minutes because <laughs> I told you that? Wow. And that translated into them saying into their Facebook groups, guys, you have to try Feedback Panda. I, I had a little problem and they they fixed this for me. This is awesome, right? And if you can build this relationship with people, with many people over time, you don't need to do any marketing because they will do your marketing for you in the best way you can have because the word of mouth marketing that comes from a place of trust and actual connection is by far, in my opinion, the most efficient marketing you can have. You right. could not buy this relationship. If I gave those people, I don't know, $10,000 to lie to their community about a product, it would not be as efficient. Even if they did like wrote like 10 posts every single day, something weird like that, this kind of growth hack stuff doesn't yeah. work by far as well as having people who communicate because they want to share your product. Yeah. And that's what people did. And that's our growth. Like honestly, our marketing, if I if I wanted to summarize it, was a post, a comment that Danielle put under a post in a Facebook group. There's people asking, how do you deal with feedback? And she said, well, I use Feedback Panda. <laughs> I guess, yeah, well, it was true, right? She was the, yeah. the first user of the product, put the link yeah. in there. And then people looked at the product and day by day, whenever somebody asked about feedback, they would put the link to Feedback Panda in there. And it just grew organically from that. We tried doing some paid advertising, didn't make any dent because mm. the community was already buzzing, right? It's like yeah. you you don't need to add more, I guess, Tinder to a, a burning fire. It's already burning. And that was the right. same with our community. They were already talking about us. It was really, really fun. Sorry for going on this tangent, but- Oh, that, no it, issues. It you covered a lot of things and I think I have a lot of questions. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So- a lot of people were coming back with feedback and they were asking you to build certain uh, features in the product itself. Yeah. How are you selecting which features to build and which features you could either push to a future date or you were not prioritizing that at all? So in the, in the beginning, it was a lot of understanding the problem space so well ourselves, Danielle being a teacher and us observing other teachers that we knew what potential impact each of these features could have on the the workflow of people so we would sort them by perceived impact we didn't quantify it in the beginning that's something that i started doing later when more and more small feature requests came in like this button looks weird or i wish there was a a, a close button here or a little drop down field to select something there you know these tiny things but yeah. in the beginning it was more bigger things like i wish this would automatically translate between male pronouns to female pronouns, something that was important to us because all these templated texts needed to be both in a he did great today and a she did great today, she did great today. because 
you know, like, and, yeah. and I actually built a machine learning system that took a long time to construct to automatically translate between these two, because there's a lot of complexity to this. Yeah. So we needed to make sure that the impact of this feature would be as high as possible. So I guess in the beginning, we did perceived impact scoring, if I can call it that. That was just Danielle and I sitting together once a week, going through the list of things that people talk to us about, and then kind of ranking them by the maximum impact for maximum amount of people. And yeah. you always have a choice. And in writing about this and in reflecting about this, I figured out that you have a choice here always, particularly in the beginning, to either serve the whole customer base or your experts, like the, the evangelists that I talked about. And it's, it's a tough one to do because if you have, like, let's say you have 20 customers in your first mm -hmm. month and five of them are super vocal and they love your product and they, they use it every single day and 15 of them are just normal users, who do you serve? Right. Those right. five people come to you with ideas and ideas and ideas. And the 15 may add one or two. They don't really care. You solved the problem already. Mm. Who there is the interesting group of people? And I would say in the beginning in particular, if you can build features that impact everybody, then you, you the growth of your business or the appeal of your business for everybody else out there increases much more than serving just your hyper-engaged evangelist initial right. kind of audience, even though they also deserve to have that problem solved, obviously, right? But yeah. they, they might be too invested and they might be thinking like too far, I don't really know. But for your business to stay nimble, I would suggest building something that everybody benefits from. And right. then at some later point, when you've run out of low-hanging fruit, then you can do this kind of thing. Okay, this would solve, this would help 50% of the people. This would help 10% of the people, but so much more. Let's build this and see if we can get the other ones to use it as well. And if not, then it's an expert feature that we can maybe put into a new price tier double the price for them and right. add this feature. Right? You can you can make these choices later, but I think particularly in the beginning, and we, we thought about this, go with the stuff that has maximum impact for maximum amount of people. Right, and uh, you built this SaaS product that was basically a feedback uh, helper for all the teachers out there. At any point, did you contact the organization that was doing this educational thing or uh, did you fear that they would build their own feedback uh -huh. product oh yeah always that uh, and i think that is uh, the one thing that every SaaS founder has in, in the back of their mind it could be over tomorrow right it's always yeah. this like some uh, microsoft or github could build a clone of my continuous integration tool or yeah th this online school could build feedback into their own system and in some way they kind of did but they did it in a way that it, it almost felt like a as an afterthought. And that's that's the great okay. thing about building these niche SaaS products. You are the expert on this particular thing. When we know a lot about feedback and we know a lot about how people approach it, because not only did we build the tool that allowed people to write this kind of feedback, we also had like literally millions of pieces of feedback in our database that we could in, in, like just investigate. How long is the average piece of feedback? What's the average word count? What's the average word density, right? The density of, of certain terms, what do people say? Like we had a lot of insight into this kind of data. So obviously we, we could tailor a solution that was perfectly aimed at this one particular problem. If you're an online school, you have to do teaching, you have to build a video chat platform, you have right. to do curriculum, you have to build a system that allows people to update the curriculum, you have to do a payment system for your the parents of the kids to pay, and then get a learning system and, and emails that, you know, it's, it's a big business. So yeah. feedback for them is priority number 25 after mm. making money, marketing, right. you know, like all these other things. So uh, whatever they came up with was an afterthought, if at all. And so, so most of these platforms didn't build this. So if you built on top of a platform, it, unless you're building something that is just yelling, this is missing in the main product and you could easily adapt this, just build it because your expertise in this field will keep you adaptive enough to build something even better than what they offer. And if you keep your prices right, people will still pay for it because they have already have a budget for this at some point. But we had this fear and particularly since we, we thought these, these companies would copy our product, but we integrated with them in a very specific way. Like if, if you are any, if all the, the listeners out there who are technical, 
enough to understand this. I'm just going to go through it quickly, but yeah. they, they had a lot of unique IDs in the URL of the classroom. You could figure out which who's the student, what is the lesson, and what's okay. this classroom. Just easily have like unique IDs somewhere in there which we could pull out and then use in our oh. own database to make retrieval quick. Right, so that was the initial version, and then they switched to a classroom that didn't have these IDs anymore. They had it somewhere in in the code of the page. So I needed to build something that dove into the code of the page okay. and extracted those numbers. So yeah. that was already kind of a hack. And then a couple months later, they changed the code of the page. So my retrieval algorithm needed to be updated. So I would now find the code somewhere else. It was always like a cat and mouse situation because right. they changed something, we would have to adapt, and we always feared what happens if they change so we can't extract this information anymore mm. Th that would suck i mean they could people would still be able to use the product but you know they are used to this being integrated and like tightly uh, coupled with their own data and if it couldn't be done like this anymore that would kind of suck so there, it was always this fear of unannounced change both in terms of a whole business and of parts of the business that we needed for integration that kept us going but Honestly, the more you talk to founders in different spaces, if you if you listen to the the podcast on on, on by by the people building Transistor FM by Justin and, and John, yes. the bootstrapping SaaS podcast, they also talk about this. Like, what if the big ones uh, build these features? What if somebody else builds the exact thing and just throws a couple million of millions of dollars in marketing and in there? Right. right. Every. Every business, no matter how small or how big it is, has this in the back of their minds. And what I would say is build it anyway. Because if somebody clones your product and throws millions of marketing money in there, well, they're going to get a couple of your customers. Great. But mm. you still have some customers that understand that you're the expert and the other one is just going for money. And right. if you get pushed out of the market, then you all of a sudden are an interesting person for somebody to hire. Right? Even yeah. like that, that at least is the baseline. You're going to have a high paying job. Yeah, right? could be worse. So the experience of building a business is worth learning in itself. And I could definitely say that because the next thing you build, you'll be so much faster. You'll be thinking more about defensibility, about modes like that keep you unattacked, I guess, for longer or uh, allow you to defend yourself for longer. And just over time, you build something that you will retain. But the risk is always there. So yeah. don't shy away just because there's risk. That's the whole entrepreneurial journey is to sometimes run into problems and sometimes have to give up, sometimes failing, and that's perfectly fine. Because, you know, if you fail seven times, you get up eight times. Mm. So no problem, you're still standing. And I think that's that's important to understand because I've failed a couple times before with businesses. We built a local food marketplace here in Berlin, uh, an online marketplace system where people could, uh, from the city, could order food from outside the city, from farmers. It was really cool in, in theory, but we kind of forget uh, we did forget to integrate PayPal and payments. So we didn't have payments oh. for our marketplace because that was <laughs> way too complicated. And just, you know, like we made a lot of mistakes and we failed with this product. It since then turned into something else, but we learned so much just building it and building right. a community around it that helped me in later projects to not make those mistakes again. So I guess mistakes are there to not make them again in the future. And if somebody like uh, builds something that is much better than your business, well, either you um, build something that is as good as theirs or they're just better. <laughs> that yeah. could also be a thing. It's right? a learning experience um, either ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, talk about some of the failures that you have had because you always, uh, in all the podcasts, you speak about some of the uh, things that you were trying to build over the years and they failed. So could you dive a bit deeper into those failures and why? what are the lessons that you took away from them? Yeah, the, the marketplace thing is a is a pretty pretty good one to, to continue talking about failures. So we really didn't understand our audience with that one and we didn't validate it. At least we we, we knew that farmers were out there surrounding Berlin producing very good local produce and, and like meats and eggs and stuff. We knew that, obviously, because they were already trying to sell into the city. And we knew that there was an audience inside of Berlin that was interested in consuming these products. But what we didn't know were the workflows of those people, which is why I stress this so much in, in terms of solution validation now. Like, right. imagine a farmer. Do you think a farmer is sitting in front of their computer for four hours a day being mm. super happy to put in inventory into a web-based system? A farmer is in the fields. A farmer is out there working their farm. 
And yes. this is something we completely ignored. We built this complicated SaaS application for people to track their inventory, yet we didn't even know if they had a computer at home, right? We we should have um, done something more like a concierge service where they would call in and quickly just give us numbers and names and we would have either a person doing it in a call center or like a an automated, like I don't know, AI-based algorithm that would take the recording and turn that into a list for them to confirm and whatever, right? Yeah. That we didn't think of the workflow that those people had. And then we built a product over, I think, six or seven months without ever showing it to anybody. Oh. Gigantic mistake as well. But, yeah. And we, it was a two-sided marketplace. So we kind of made one mistake that was two mistakes in one like we didn't show it to the people who would need to be there as a vendor and we didn't show it to the people who would need to be there as a customer so okay. our checkout process was totally messed up like i said didn't have a payment option so they would have to do a on pickup payment where people would like deliver the food and they would have to pay the money right there or invoices that would kind of have to be sent between the person and the vendor and we wouldn't be able to get a cut because yes. we were not in the middle it was yes. it was stupid if you think about it but it was it was you know 2012 it was back then but it's <laughs> it's still it is something that i learned a lot from is how how blind we were to the necessities of validation right. and all these kind of steps we didn't validate our business model to actually be able to to siphon off a percentage of the profits in in this whole thing. We didn't validate the the workflow of our customers. We didn't even validate if they were interested in having this as a technical solution or if they wanted to have some sort of um, key account right. person that would deal with them. We just didn't validate these things. And then we still built a gigantic system. We had a designer. We had me as a tech person building the actual part of software. We had the CEO who was really who knew a lot about farming but not a lot about building businesses and products so all of us kind of knew something but not enough even the group didn't know enough and over this year that we built this and the, the years and where well, we tried to make it work in the the following years we just learned how uh, initial validation could have saved us from spending all this time or we would have built a totally different product if we had understood this with the farmers, right? We would have invited the focus group, just talk to them, show them a markup and say, would you use this on your phone while you're out there? Or is that still too much? Like, mm. is this something that you can take like 30 minutes a week to update? Would you want to do that on the phone? Or would you just want to call us? We'd never ask these questions. And right. in retrospect, really should have. That That is uh, a couple more learnings from that project. I think validation is one of the most easily skipped things because we all think we know the answers, but right. we only know what we think, right? We don't know what other people think until we talk to them. And even then, if we ask the wrong questions, like, do you like this? Would you pay for this? People say, yeah, because they like you or yeah, because they think it would be kind of nice. But until they really do and until you figure out what their actual problems are, and I think you should be reading the demand test by Rob Fitzpatrick to to be able to. It's a great book, uh, teaching you how not to ask the wrong questions. Right? right. Mom test. Like if you ask your mom, "Do you like my idea?" What do you think she's gonna say? Ah, I love it. Exactly. And <laughs> yeah. does that help you? Right. And no, and yeah. that's that's the whole point of the book is to ask questions like, "Okay, last time you ran into this problem, what did you do?" So much more insightful immediately, right? Wow. Instead of asking, do you like my solution? You ask them, so what did you do to solve this problem? What was your because, solution? Yeah. Because if they say, well, I just dealt with it, then it's not a big problem, right? Mm. But it's like, oh yeah, I, I just did it because we're going to have to do it anyway. But if they say, well, I did this thing, I, I took a Google Sheet and I worked for two hours trying to fix the, the to build like a thing. And then you're, okay, something is going on here that I could help. And Again, read the mom test. It's it's full of these examples and it really makes it pretty clear what questions not to ask and what questions to to ask to drill deep into the things. I wish I would have known that back then because I didn't. And yeah. I didn't because I hadn't read up on this kind of stuff. I just mm. jumped into it, right? I was a software engineer. I thought, okay, I've seen all these software engineers building their own businesses. I could do it too. Well, <laughs> no, you still have to go through some form of education. And the great thing for me was Back in 2015, I had my last real job, like as an employee in Hamburg, the city of Hamburg for a software company here in Germany. I was living in Berlin and those two cities are like three hours apart by car or by train. And I was commuting there three days a week by train. So I had like 
two and a half hours there, two and a half hours back, three times a week, 15 hours oh of just sitting in a train. And if you have 15 hours of sitting in a train, but you're awake because it's in the morning, too late to sleep, too early to do work, or yeah. late in the afternoon, too early to sleep, too late to do work, you, you start filling it with podcasts and reading mm. books and audiobooks. And in those two years that I was doing that job, I read all the books I could find. I listened to every single Indie Hackers podcast episode. I wow. listened to like Startups for the Rest of Us, all these kind of Indie Hacker bootstrapping based podcasts, not because I knew I was going to build Feedback Panda. We didn't know it back then, but yeah. I knew I wanted to eventually build something. Mm. So I just let it all pour in. I read right. the mom test. I read Built to Sell. I read the E-Myth, all these books that I also recommend on, on my blog in, in my own yeah. bookshelf. Because I feel if you read these, you have this baseline of knowledge and on which you can then learn the actual pragmatic stuff, right? right? And I just had it all come in. And from there, Fritter Panda was much easier. I wish Zero to Sold had been there at this point. <laughs> A book yeah. like this was what I would have liked to read. It didn't exist. So I read all the other little ones and kind of pulled them together. But yeah, that's. I think it's important to 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 understand the concepts of how other people failed and how other mm. people ran into problems. So you can understand what to do once you run into this problem yourself. Right. And what's interesting about Feedback Panda is that at its peak, you had 55,000 US dollars per month. You had, I think, 5,000 teachers paying you $15 monthly. So huge user base in terms of how niche your market was. And it's all started with a single comment posted by Daniel in one of the groups she was active in. And it happened because she was genuinely contributing to those groups before she posted the product. So how important would you say is contributing to those communities beforehand, just getting inside the door and letting people know who you are and helping them before sort of plugging in your product? I I think it's extremely important. I, I think you cannot overstate this really if you if you wanted to, because being part of a niche community, if that is your audience and, and being part of your audience in general is is a is a basic requirement for success. Because not only do do you need to have an an opportunity to pluck your product, that's like that's like the last step for me, right? Because that is something that you need to eventually do, but you need to do it coming from coming from a genuine place of wanting to help people, right? Not not just I want to sell these people something and then move on to the next community and sell them something. Mm. That is how how it used to be. Right? Like people traveling from door to door trying to sell as many weird like vacuums or something as possible. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 a time of single time short term transactions. Right. But we are looking in the SaaS economy, we're looking at a long term transaction, like yeah. the forever transaction, I've heard it called. Like you have a customer and you want to keep them forever. You want to right. build a relationship with them because one customer that pays you 15 bucks a month is a customer that pays you 180 bucks a year, right? Mm, and if you right. do that for 10 years, they've paid like, they've paid almost $2,000. And mm. if you have a couple of those people, that is a very interesting customer base. Right. Instead of having to try to push something into a community, having a community that really enjoys what you're doing and gets other people to enjoy that too, that's the goal. And I think embedding yourself into a community allows you to do a couple of things. Let's start from the beginning. It right. allows you to understand who these people are, what problems they have, how they communicate, what language they speak, so you can later speak it to them in your marketing, in your customer service interactions, in your outreach, you know, in asking for testimonials. People have a way of communicating in a community. They have a certain kind of dialect almost right it's like a, a dialect that only exists within this sphere because once right. once you talk to online english teachers they use certain abbreviations they use certain words that other groups wouldn't use yeah so it's tribe if, tribes yeah it's tribal speech and if you're yeah. part of the tribe you adopt it so you become one of them right and you can communicate with them and you should from the beginning talking about their problems trying to help them solve their problems not necessarily using your solution just really trying to engage them, empowering them, sharing their knowledge, sharing their questions so that other people might help them. I've done this in, in my own personal Twitter community in particular. Right? Yeah. I started um, writing my blog, The Bootstrap Founder, in November in 2019. That's now almost uh, yeah, 11 months ago. Yeah. And I had 
couple hundred, like 400 followers on Twitter back then because I really was just wow. a, a lurker, right? To so somebody who follows other people but never says much. But mm. the moment I started my blog, I just went out there and shared everything I had. The things that I thought about, the things that other people thought about, I commented on with my own thoughts, followed people, amplified people's questions. People had a problem, retweet, not a problem, right? Then somebody yeah. will help them. People had a, some success story. I reached 100 bucks MRR this month. I'm super stoked. Retweet. This is more exposure for them. It costs wow. me literally a click. It's like nothing for me, but I get to give those people a bit more reach. And now right. that I have almost 9,000 followers, that reach matters, right? It, it gives yeah. them more access to other people. And I still do this. People have 50 bucks MRR for the first time because they've started their business two weeks ago. Well, congratulations. Share that with the world because it's awesome, right? And wow. if you become a person that is genuinely interested in your community and you empower people, you help people, you help them answer their questions, you answer their questions and you share without asking, then you will build up this kind of reputation that will only result in people wanting to give back eventually. Right. And I, I've seen this. I, I've mentored a couple people over the, the last year as well. And I've seen this happen. People were on Reddit. People were on Facebook, on Twitter, just genuinely sharing with their communities. And then at some point, they asked for something. They asked for I need somebody to help me figure out this problem. I'm trying to build a software for this particular stuff. Mm. And I need somebody to, to bounce a couple ideas back and forth. Anybody out there? 20 people jumping at them. Okay, I want to help you. You were so cool wow. over the last month. I read your articles. I read and all this kind of stuff. How can I help you? And I experienced this personally with my book, Zero to Sold. Like I, I shared my, my progress, right? I wrote articles. I wrote a chapter here. And now I have this problem with my editor. They don't understand what I'm saying. Put all of this out on Twitter. And then and, and someday I said, okay, I released my book. Here's the link to Amazon. Here's the link to Gumroad. Let me know what you think. And on, on the first day, I think 350 people bought my book. Wow. Right? I expected maybe 20, maybe 30. If I was lucky, 50 to, right. to purchase a book. And I got like seven times that. And yeah. it's because people just really were waiting for an opportunity to give back. Mm. And they still do. I sold, yeah. uh, I sold over two, almost two and a half thousand copies at this point. So every single day, somebody considers, oh, yeah, this guy is, uh, has been providing me with information about bootstrapping and building my business for a year. I can spend $10, right? Right. And that's that's kind of what you what you want to build. You want to be part of a community, not just to throw your product in and hope for people to click on it, but for people to be genuinely interested in what you offer because you've shown yourself to be somebody who cares, who is yeah. who's become an expert by just being part of them, part of their community, helping people, help lifting up people, becoming somebody that they want to associate with. And then like putting a product in there, even building your product with them, it right. becomes so much easier. So big recommendation, become a part of a community, embed yourself, first listen, right? Don't start chatting, just go in there, listen, see what people's problems are, see how they talk, then slowly become part of the conversation, add, give without asking, and then eventually there will be a point where you cannot not ask because people are just pulling it from you at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen this in your book, like you share so much wisdom in 140 characters. So I think in people's mind, it's like, this is a 500 page book. So what are the gems that are inside it that you're talking about? And at the same time, I've seen this with very few books where people share selfies when they buy yeah, books. I was, seen, I was blown I've away. I, I've seen, and here's one thing, people, lot, lots of people have really cool pools in their backyard, apparently, because I've oh. seen a lot of selfies of people just <laughs> hanging out at the pool, at least in the summer. But it, it was it was the cutest thing. Some people shared selfies of themselves uh, with the book. Some people shared pictures of the book and their dog. People, yeah. there was one that shared a picture of the book with their like infant child holding it up. It was the <laughs> cutest thing. And I'm, I was blown away by this because I did not expect it, but I obviously welcome it. This is awesome. But right. for something that I made to be part of other people's lives and they're proud yeah. enough to actually share it with the world, mm. I'm I'm still blown away every time I see this. But I think it's it's because we are in the bootstrapping community, we are a very open, very optimistic, very positive community. Yeah, like, it's very rare. Support is the base function of this community. It, you, right. you, I don't see this much in other communities. There's a lot right. of, even on Twitter, adjacent communities and i don't want to bash them but they, they are just 
different, right? If you look at money Twitter, where people talk about personal finance, there's a lot of almost brutal success focus there. In, in right. bootstrapping and in indie hackers communities, it feels more like, yeah, you can fail. That's perfectly fine. It's all part of the plan. And you have a really, really small amount of success. Hey, better than nothing, right? And this this could be the big like the big leap eventually and just keep doing this 20 more times and you'll be right there. It's all this extremely positive um, acknowledgement of people's small successes that right. compound over time into something bigger, right? It's like they, they will eventually be an overnight success, but they will have been 10 years in the making. So mm. the community understands that there is no overnight success. There only is really work and discipline and focus and not um, staying down when you fall off the horse, but getting back up. And I think that makes this community so so loving. And yeah, loving is the right word because they really love what they do, what other people do. And right. they empower each other just from the goodness of their heart. There's no There's no hidden agenda to retweeting something, right? It's just, okay, this is cool. Here, look at it. Right. Yeah. And and I I really enjoy being part of this community, which is which is why I'm on Twitter way too much. But I just <laughs> I just really like to see like people improving, just even if it's just a little bit. But every yeah. single day I see somebody improving, and I I just really enjoy that. Yeah. And with Feedback Panda, it was a SaaS business, but you started a newsletter where you were sharing stories of teachers who were using yeah. your product. Yeah. And so how did that help? Uh, building the community for Feedback Panda? We, we understood that there was already a big niche tribe, like a, a tribal niche community. And right. we knew that we wouldn't need to necessarily make our own community, but we wanted to be, to be part of the the talk in the community, right? right. And it is, I, I feel a lot of times people building a business think they have to build their own kind of exclusive club of customers that they then feed this information to. Uh, this may be good for some industries where there's a lot of secrecy maybe, or a lot of trying to prevent other people from having success. Right. And, and this is, and it comes to shareability of your product as well. There was, there's an interesting blog post by, by Ryan Culp. He's been talking about um, shareability um, of this, of, of, yeah, of businesses when it comes to referral systems, because okay. we also in, implemented a referral system eventually. And some businesses are just inherently not shareable. If your business is giving yourself an edge over your competition in the space, you're not going to invite them with a referral system, right? You're going to try to keep it for yourself. Or if it shows that you lack some sort of knowledge, you're not going to tell people, hey, I'm an idiot. I don't know how to do this. That's why I <laughs> use the software. That just won't happen. But in our case, it wasn't. In our case, it was extremely shareable because yeah. it didn't give you an edge. It just made you teach better. It wasn't showing that you were an idiot. It just saved you some yeah. time. And, you know, all these all these things kind of <laughs> led to our product itself being highly shareable. And in right. this sense, we we just amplified the messaging that was already out there. And we had this, like, like you said, we had this VI Panda thing where we would talk about the very important panda of the week. Every, right. every week there would be a teacher and just allowed them to share their life story. They didn't even need to talk about Feedback Panda because... It was our newsletter. Like people were already kind of, they were already signed up for our newsletter. We didn't need them to come back to our product. They were using it anyway. But what we wanted with the blog post in particular, that this also was, it was linked, right? So we wanted people right. to share the blog post so they would come to our domain, look at the blog post, look at all the, the other blog posts that were teaching specific where our, we had a couple of contractors that would write blog posts for us that were also teachers. So we, okay. we hired people from within our audience to write blog posts for our audience. Obviously, okay, it was a resource for teachers teaching in that uh, yeah. particular, yeah. It, it, it wasn't it wasn't like a, a big play that we did with that. We just had a resource there for people to find and enjoy if they wanted to. But the VI Panda was more important to us because it allowed us to actually celebrate our customers. And mm. there's something to seeing your peer customers. If, if I was a teacher seeing a newsletter with a face that I know from my community on Facebook being highlighted and reading about their journey to Morocco or their how they are, they and their two kids moved to Vietnam for a year, something like this, right? It's just, okay, I can connect with those people. These are my peeps. This is my, this is my community. That creates this kind of aura of benevolence around the product because it just feels like this is not just a software product where somebody's making money. This is yeah. actually somebody who cares about me and the people like me. 
And and that's, I think, why the VI Panda was such a successful thing in fostering community. And of course, there was SEO benefits and there was conversion benefits and all these businessy like number things. But I, I, I feel when people talked about Feedback Panda within their community, it was always with this kind of sense of these people get us. They understand our problems. They are here to actually help us. Yeah. And then you can pay $15 a month. And some people... Yeah. For some people, that was too much. Some said, well, I'm going to stay with my weird work document explosion. That is uh, my current <laughs> solution. Fine for us. They were not our customers. Our customers yeah. were the people who actually thought of themselves as a professional teacher who has a budget for professional tools that make their life and their professional life better. Right? And that, yeah. that was our audience. And them, we wanted to make feel comfortable in the community and as our customers. And I think that's, that was successful through our community efforts. Yeah, you were trying to build a feedback panda for people, not necessarily for search engines sort of stuff. And this is something that Harry Rife for Marketing Examples talks a lot about. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about is, uh, so there are some books that have uh, entertainment value. So that could be Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. And yeah. then there are other books that you can categorize them in as toolkits so hundred dollar startup four hour work week and yeah. zero to soul certainly falls into that category because there are so many lessons that you can make notes of and then you can go back to those lessons and just flip through pages and go back to certain lessons that you might need at certain stages of building the business so could you just talk a bit about your book or what people can get from reading that book thank you so much for the assessment that's really nice to hear i'm being compared to these books is uh Making me smile quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I wrote Zero to Sold. There's an interesting story, maybe to the book, because I, I started the blog, The Butcher Founder, pretty much by having a list of random ideas I wanted to talk about. That was okay. like when we when we sold the business, that was my first thing. I just wrote down a list of 50, then 100, then 200 blog post titles that I always wanted to write because I never got to it before. And then I started writing them. And week by week, I wrote a new article. And over time, it kind of crystallized itself into a certain structure, right? Okay. Some of these things were on idea and the, the initial stage of the business, like the, the ideation stage, the preparation stage. And mm. some of these things were on, okay, now I have my thing, I have my product. Now I really need to turn it into a business and make that survive. So that was the survival stage. And right. then there was this kind of, okay, I have found the product that I can reliably sell through this kind of transaction that I continuously do. And that was the yeah. stability stage. Now I'm stable. Now I can look into growing this. And then, of course, came the last stage, growth, right? Where you whoosh, either you zoom into more and more and more or you sell your business. Yeah. And I, I figured out, okay, this looks like four parts of a book, kind of, you know? <laughs> and initially I'd written a little guide where I pulled all these articles articles together and people really liked that. And I, I still have that on the, the Bootstrap on the blog page. The guide is still available for free. It's just really short paragraphs for each of the topics that I wanted to write about. And then a link to the article if I'd already written one. And somebody told me, you know what? If I could print this as a PDF or something, I would pay $10 for this. I thought, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's interesting. You know, somebody <laughs> would pay some money. So that was where the book was initially conceptualized, right? I thought, okay, if somebody would pay for a printout of this guide for 10 bucks, I could write something twice or maybe four times as dense in my experience and actually yeah. turn it into a book. So the book is pretty much my story, our story of Feedback Panda and all the other businesses in the past, like grouped into these four stages. The first one, like I said, it's the preparation stage. And that's everything what you would conceptualize as idea, the, the business idea, the product idea. Who do I want to serve? How do I serve? How do I figure out what I could do for them? Do I come up with the idea first? Do I come up with the audience first? Well, the correct answer is the audience. And that's yeah. how I describe it in the book as well. It, it really goes through all these stages. Find your audience, validate your audience, find the critical problem, validate find a solution, validate, build a product, validate, build a business, find your initial pricing, figure out what tech to use, all these little things that are important things for every single entrepreneur. I always need to think about like 20 things at the same time. Yeah. I put them in there in, a, in the order of how they appeared in our journey of the business. And once you have that, once you have the preparation stage, once you have a prototype of your product, 
you go into stability or no, you go into, oh, I wish you would, you go into survival, <laughs> you start actually marketing the product and having customer service interactions and then starting to continuously validate your product with your customers and finding customers and finding a good price and, and you know, all these things that you need to then figure out when you actually clash with the market out there. There in that part of the book, then in stability, I go more into detail about scaling your business, building a customer service operation that actually scales with your customers. That comes from the fact that Feedback Panda was only really ever two people, like with zero users, it was Danielle and me. And with 5,000 users, it was Danielle and me. So yeah. we would have to deal with a lot of customer service. And there was a lot of automation involved. There was a lot of um, documentation involved which is also the whole point of building a sellable business because the more automated it is and the yeah. more documented it is, the easier it is to sell because yeah. it's a good business, right? A good business is, a, is one that runs almost without you and a business that people want to buy by definition is a sellable business and people want to buy good businesses. So well automated, well documented means sellable. So that is then part of, of the third part of the book. And then in the final part of the book, uh, the growth stage, I talk about what I experienced and what we experienced in actually selling the business. Mm. There's always the opportunity to keep it running. And I talk about this too, but right. my personal experience is in actually selling it. So I talk about the due diligence, how to prepare your business for that, how to prepare your business to actually be interesting for people to buy, and then how to go through the actual sale and what comes after. Because that's the one thing, the one kind of vacuum that I fell into after selling the business because I didn't know what to do. I'd been running Feedback Panda 24-7 for two years. Then I sold it. Then I was just sitting in front of my computer not knowing what to do with my day, right? That kind of, you, you run at full speed and then you run into this wall. Right. That is also important. So I talk about that. So from your first idea of I want to build a business to what do I do now that I've sold it for millions? Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's... the journey of the book. I read about uh, the book Hooked that you talk about how to build habit forming products and you sort of used one of the ideas from that book to give a 30 day free trial to the early users of your of your product because you wanted people to get into the habit of using your product. That's so right. in that regard, would you say that giving people 30 day free trials is a better option than giving them 70 or 10 day free trials? <laughs> Yes, but, but again, like any kind of advice, and I may, may want to retroactively declare this, this comes with um, the caveat of it has to work for your business, right? It, just because yes. it worked for mine doesn't mean it has to work for yours. But the idea was um, Hooked suggests that any habit that people form on a daily basis takes around 28 something days to, to form. So um, that would be almost 30, right? So giving people a month, allows them to build the habit in, in a very, very structural way. But the whole idea um, behind Hooked is the Hooked cycle, that you have a, it has four parts, like trigger, action, variable, reward, and investment. That's what, that's the message that Nereal gives in this book, right? right? Something triggers you, then you do a thing, then some you get something from it, but it changes over time, right? The variable rewards, like on Facebook, you see the Facebook notification, you don't know what it is. That's why you click on it to see wow. what it is. Could just be a like, could be a message, could be like an ad, could be something disappointing, but it also could be something really cool. That's why you click it. Not because we can know what it is, but because you want to know what it is. And then yeah. comes the investment. And that was the part where I finally understood how to build a good SaaS product. Because we had this... Um, this sharing platform within our product where people um, could share their templates with other teachers. It was the investment part, among others, of course, right? Because mm. um, you, you see a template by a teacher, you click on it, you want to see what it is. That's the action. You see, yeah. that, uh, you see that there is a template. That's the trigger. Then you look at the template, you like it, and then you, put in, you pull it into your database and use it for your own teaching. For your own feedback writing, wow. that's the investment. And then maybe you save your new version of that to our cloud. That's what we called it, the Feedback Panda cloud. And somebody else sees the new template trigger and they look at the okay. template. They, you know, it's just this never-ending cycle of a notification, an action, and just wow. inspection and investment. And investment is the part that makes this cycle repeat. And it's the same why I think a 30-day trial is interesting. Because if you have 
invested 30 days of using the product, writing templates, importing templates from other teachers, saving your students um, information, maybe putting a little photo of your student in there. That yeah. is investment into your product. And I mean, you could always call it, almost call it a sunk cost if you're interested in fallacies and stuff, but there is sunk cost in there. You've spent hours building your database. You don't want to give that up. So you pay $10, right? In the worst of cases, you pay it grudgingly. In the best of cases, you pay it, yeah, this is awesome. This is worth $10, right? So the, uh, making people invest into the product over an extended period of time should be worth, definitely worth giving them this time for free because if they if they don't have enough time to invest, then they might not care as much. So I would always give, give them a month. I mean, I mean, if it doesn't kill your business, to allow people to use your product because there's like heavy computation in the background or a lot of storage requirements of video processing. You know, there's businesses where this doesn't work as, as well. But yeah. for most SaaS businesses that are already in the 90 something percent margin anyway, because they have super low costs, yeah. give them a month and allow them to freely experience the whole product in its complexity, with like full access, not just a little bit, but just yeah. use the whole thing and see if you have enough potential investment. That's all you need. Mm. Wow. And what are the books you would recommend or sort of resources that you go back to over and over again and use the lessons and the tools from those books in your daily life? So, um, wow. <laughs> do you have an hour? Yeah. There's, there's so, so many good books out there. I, I do I have an hour, by the way. I always recommend five because like for the, for the business in, in particular, right? That's, um, you already mentioned a couple, Hooked by Nereal, um, Built to Sell by John Warlow. The E-Myth, Revisited, I guess, is uh, the second edition or fourth or something by Michael E. Gerber. Then The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. That that one uh, is uh, significant because that was the one that thought that made me think, oh, yeah, I could do this. You know, yeah. that, that's just one of these things. Okay, he seems to have been doing well just sitting on the beach selling his <laughs> vitamins or whatever. So yeah. th there must be a way for me to, to be able to do something similar. And then I mentioned it earlier, The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick, because that is just... Um, almost call it the Bible of uh, talking to customers in, in customer exploration, customer validation um, conversations. And and then when it comes to the more personal stuff, I guess I would heavily uh, recommend Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is just um, either it's interesting from business perspective because it talks about habits and how you can use them and how can you, how you can facilitate them for other people or just for yourself to become a better person, right? Become a person that is focused on the things that they should be doing and uh, focused, not easily distracted. And I guess that brings me to the last one, which is another book by Nereal, the sequel, I guess, to Hooked. And it's called Indistractable. Kind of, um, it's it's the cure to the poison, right? Hooked makes you, gets you hooked and Indistractable unhooks you or allows you to figure out how you can live a life of traction a life of focus instead of being consistently distracted by notifications, by things that pop into your mind, you know, monkey brain kind of stuff. It's a really good book. Um, and, and like, like James Clear, he's, he has a pretty clear style of uh, getting to the point. So uh, yeah, those I would recommend. But I have a gigantic list of books on the Butcher Founder blog called The Bookshelf, where I have like a little... Yeah, I think 50-something books that I personally have in my library. Haven't oh. updated it in a while. There's like a stack of 20 books right next to me <laughs> that I should probably put in there too. But yeah. th there's a lot of good books in, in the field. But those five and uh, the other uh, two or three, I would heavily recommend. Wow. And if people want to connect with you and learn more from you, what are the best places for that? So I, I guess I'm most active on Twitter. I kind of admitted that earlier. Yeah. You can find me at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. Yeah. And um, the Butcher Founder blog, I write there every week. There's a newsletter if you're interested in that up there. And I have a podcast called The Butcher Founder Podcast also every week. You can find that at thebootserfounder.com. And Zero to Sold is on zerotosoldbook.com if you're looking into the book. But you can also find that on the blog. Wow. Thank you, Arvid. 